let's prepare our heart for today's message. And also, I want to make mention that we have a guest speaker who is here today. His name is Heath Adamson. He's the Senior Vice President of Convoy of Hope. He's a friend of Westover, and he is here to share a message of hope and to share what Convoy is doing around the world. Would you help me give a warm Westover welcome to our friend Heath Adamson? Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, good morning. What a privilege to be here. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. We don't deserve to be here, do we? Mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. I met Jesus when I was 17. I'm 45. He's more real now than he's ever been. And it's just a privilege to be in the presence of the mighty one with you. So Pastor Jim, Pastor Denise, it's always a treat to be back at Westover Hills. This is a place where Jesus is welcome. Not all churches are created equal. And this is a special place. I honor you for your integrity and your consistent passion and devotion to the presence of God year after year after year. It's rare, and because of you, we've all been blessed. So thank you so much. I want to thank you for your generosity. We're on the ground right now serving needs in Puerto Rico, in Florida, and all over Eastern Europe, and I could go on and on and on because of your generosity. We continue to serve the refugees, the the women and the children who pour in and out of Ukraine. Because of your generosity, we have over 100 distribution hubs in Ukraine alone. We've covered over 85% of that nation's territory with hope. And people are meeting Jesus. There's a spiritual awakening taking place in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe as people cry out to God. We're living in an age where the love of most grows cold. That means that love is a sign and a wonder. Love is a new idea again. Thank you for loving God and for loving your neighbor. Whatever you do unto the least of these, and there is no such thing as a least of these. Everyone is made in his image. But whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto me, Jesus said. So, Lord, thank you for your heart for us, and thank you for your generosity, church. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, that's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. A certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask or beg for alms. From those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. Fixing his eyes on him with Peter, with John, Peter said, look at us. He gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the hand and he lifted him up. Immediately, his feet and his ankle bones received strength. So he, walking, leaping, entered the temple with them, praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Poverty is an illegitimate reality. It is not part of God's original design. That means it is illegal in the kingdom of God. And as followers of Jesus, we have the privilege 
and frankly, the responsibility to pull heaven, to pull the kingdom of God to the earth. And together we're doing that. We are ending the cycle of physical and spiritual poverty. Because of you, because of your one day, right now we feed over 465,000 children in 36 nations all over the world. And we've only just begun. With God's help and with yours, we are aiming to feed 1 million children daily by the time we reach 2030. When we feed a child, feeding is part of a comprehensive strategy. We also provide clean water. I'll never forget the look on the eyes of, uh, uh, in the eyes of the children in Burkina Faso. We dug a well in a remote village. And as pure clean water gushed out of the ground, much to their surprise, when water is in its purest drinkable form, it's not supposed to be brown, but clear. They never saw clear water before. We have a team of nutritionists all over the world who make sure children have the proper blend of proteins, carbohydrates, micronutrients, and fats. Why? Because we want to treat them as if we would our own children. And for these 465,000 children that right now we feed every day in our education-based program, for many of them, most of them, this is the only meal they eat during the day. So we feed, we provide clean water, Education is a part of our strategy, and we create opportunities. We want to end the cycle of physical and spiritual poverty. And God is transforming the lives not only of children, but women, local farmers, entire families and communities all over the world. And our, our motivation is simple. It's grounded in the ethic of Jesus. You have never laid eyes on someone that Jesus did not die for. For that reason, regardless of age, gender, education, socioeconomic status, even religious belief, everyone is of intrinsic utmost value. The innocent Lamb of God gave his life on the cross for the sins of everybody. That means everyone deserves to be loved. But we cannot respond appropriately to our times unless we fully understand them. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but right now in our common human experience, we together share a tragic, historic setback. For the first time in 20 years, the percentage of the world's population living in poverty has actually increased. And that increase represents at least 119 million additional people. To put that in to perspective, between 850 and 930,000 people that we know of live in poverty. That's roughly 10% of the world's population. They live on less than $1.90 a day. And tragically, most of them are children. I don't say that for effect or sensation. I say that because I've gazed into the eyes of countless children all over the world who are starving. And it is my privilege and honor to stand here and advocate on their behalf. Not only has the percentage of the world's population living in poverty increased, but the malnutrition rate has skyrocketed. In 2019, it was at 8%. It is right now at a staggering 9.8%. And this is completely unacceptable. And it is also preventable. And when hopelessness abounds, people do unspeakable things. I spoke with a father 
in Southeast Asia who sold his oldest daughter to buy food for the rest of his family. You walk among the refugee camps filled with Venezuelans in places like Brazil and Colombia, you'll notice a trend. Many of the women and the girls have shaved their heads. Why? They're selling their hair to buy food. The United States is no stranger to hunger. You know that well. This church is outreach focused. You care very well for your community and your region. But even in places like San Antonio in the United States, parents choose between, and I quote, paying my bills and buying groceries. There are many children who go to school and they eat ketchup for breakfast, and it's not because they don't want eggs. It's because it's all they have. In Acts chapter 3, the context of what Dr. Luke wrote is interesting. Because in Acts chapter 2, something happens. The Bible says a group of believers are gathered together in one place and in one accord. They're in unison, and they're crying out to God in prayer. And something magnanimous occurs. The Bible says in the place where they were sitting, it was shaken. And there was a sound, a sound similar to a rushing mighty wind that filled the place where they were, and they began to speak in spiritual languages. It also tells us that tongues of fire or balls of fire come down and rest on top of each one of their heads. What does that fully mean? Frankly, honestly, I don't really know. All I know is it happened. They're in a prayer meeting, and there's an earthquake in the, in the room. There's this loud sound, balls of fire rest on their heads, and they begin to declare the wonders of God in languages they did not know. And what's interesting is the crowd gathered around them, and they heard the wonders of God declared in a language that they understood. So one of my favorite things about God, He always makes sure that he communicates to us in a language we understand. Today, we worship a God who does not expect us to learn his language so that we can communicate to him. Instead, he always communicates in a language we understand. To the single mom, he understands, which is why he communicates to you in the way he does. Don't you love that God does not communicate at a PhD level to the three-year-old? Did you know that God is talking to your grandchildren right now? And he is telling your toddlers things that he doesn't feel necessary to bring you in on. Right now, there are preschoolers who are having a conversation with God, and God is downloading his love and his gospel and strategies from his kingdom to little boys and little girls right now in kids' church. Why? Because God communicates in a language we understand. The ancient prophet Jonah He was swallowed by a fish, which is more than ironic because the ancient Ninevites worshiped a fish god. He walks into the city covered in fish puke. Everybody thinks he's a messenger from God. Everybody repents. Now we understand why he wasn't swallowed by a hippopotamus or an iguana or a python. He's swallowed by a fish. The first three miracles Jesus of Nazareth performs in a region known as Asia Minor. What does he do? He heals the sick. He takes bread and multiplies it, and he turns water into wine. In that particular region in Asia Minor, they worship three gods, Dionysius, Asclepius, and Demeter. What were those three gods responsible for? One of them was the god of bread. 
One of them was the God who supposedly turned water into wine, and one of them was the God of healing. Jesus shows up and he says, you worship three fake gods who supposedly do three miracles. It, what it takes three gods to do for you, I can do all of them on my own. What is he communicating? He's communicating in a language we understand. And that's what's taking place in Acts chapter 2. He fills his people with the Spirit of God so that the untranslatable wonders of God can be translated in a language everyone can get. By the time you come to the end of Acts chapter 2, almost every New Testament scholar tells us that about five years have lapsed. And the embryonic early church finds itself in the middle of a unique spiritual rhythm. They have devoted themselves, the Bible says, in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They have devoted themselves to prayer. I heard someone once say, prayerlessness is the ultimate pride. They have devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching which means they're interacting with God through the Scripture. Aren't you just thankful for the Bible? They're interacting with God through the Scripture. They are so generous. The Bible tells us that not one of them even had a single need. This is what the early church looked like. By the time you come to the end of Acts chapter 2, there is a rhythm. When you come to Acts chapter 3, every single day, regardless of what the followers of Jesus are up to, whether they're working, spending time with their family, at three in the afternoon, the ninth hour, and we just read it in Acts 3, they stop what they're doing and they go to prayer at the temple, day after day after day. And the Bible tells us that there was a beggar who was laid in the path, placed in the path of all of these people who were there in Acts chapter 2. We're not quite sure how many of them walked past the beggar. What we do know is many of them would have walked past the beggar. So who is the beggar? Well, if you continue to read in Dr. Luke's narrative in the book of Acts, the beggar is, has been laid at the gate for 40 years. To put that in perspective, I'm 45. So this beggar, we do not know his name. He is lame. He cannot walk. And for 40 years, somebody carries him to the beautiful gate to beg. In first century uh, Jerusalem, the tradition and actually the standard was this. If someone in your family is lame or cannot walk or experiences various, I'll use the term challenges or handicaps even, the tradition and the rule of thumb in society was you take that person into your home and you care for your loved one who cannot walk. Someone cared enough about the beggar to take him to the gate to beg, but they did not care enough about the beggar to take him into their home, which tells us something interesting about the situation. It's very possible and likely that this beggar had no family to care for him, and that in many ways someone was profiting from his condition. I'll never forget, I was in Guatemala, and uh, there was a, a blind beggar sitting on the curb. He had no arms, no legs, and his eyes were as white as my sneakers. He was blind. He was begging for alms. What are alms? Well, in Scripture, there are really three primary types of gifts. There is the tithe. Tithe. 
We read about that both in the Old and the New Testament. The tithe does not go to Convoy of Hope. The tithe belongs in the house of God, your local church. So we don't have to pray about the tithe. It's just there. You give 10%. You don't give your best to Caesar and then pay your tithe. You pay your tithe. And you give 10% to the church. It's something you do. It's something I do. It's, it's the privilege and the honor we have of following Jesus. We give 10% of our income to the house of God. And then we give offerings. You're about to do that, aren't you? You're about to give one day to change their every day. That is an offering. Can I just say thank you for your offering, your one-day offering that you're going to receive will transform the lives of children all over the world. So there is a tithe, there is an offering, and then in Scripture there is something called an alm. An alm would be like you go to the quick trip, you buy a 99-cent you know, large iced tea or something, you give the cashier a dollar, he or she gives you a penny back, and what do you do with that penny? Usually you drop the penny in the little plastic bucket. Or if you're walking to your car and the penny slips out of your hand and it falls on the concrete, what do you do? Well, if you're like me, you stop and pick it up. But maybe you don't. Maybe you just think, ah, it's just a penny. You can't do anything with a penny. Well, when someone is begging for alms, they're not asking for a tithe. They're not asking for an offering. They're asking for that penny, an alm, which tells us this is a poor beggar. Just like the beggar I saw in Guatemala, no arms, no legs, blind. He was singing a song I didn't understand, but I knew the song very well. It was Amazing Grace. I heard him singing in a dialect I didn't understand, Amazing Grace. And I was moved with compassion. I reached into my pocket. I was going to give him all of my money. And a friend of mine saw what I was doing. I reached into my pocket. I grabbed my money. He grabs my hand and he says, don't do that. I got into an argument with him on the streets, the cobblestone streets of this ancient village. I said, what do you mean don't do that? I said, this guy is obviously in need. He has no arms, he has no legs, he's blind, he needs help. He says, in this part of the country, often when people are born with challenges like this, somebody abducts them and turns them into a slave. And they force this individual to beg and people profit from the beggar's income. He said, what can happen if you give money to a beggar who's a victim of human trafficking? You perpetuate it. So you have to use wisdom. He said, trust me. So we walk up to the beggar, and he speaks in his language and in his dialect. And later on, I found out what he said. He leaned into the beggar, and he said, sir, if God's grace is so amazing, remember the line of the hymn, I once was blind, but now I see. He said, if God's grace is so amazing, then why do you sing about a God who allows you to sit here and beg? If you were once blind, but now you see, why are you still blind? And he waited. And the blind beggar didn't even hesitate. He said, my good friend, if you do not see that God's grace is amazing, then you are more blind than I am. My friend looked at me and said, this guy's the real deal. We can help him. Next chapter three, this beggar is laid at the beautiful gate. And you can surmise from the text, it's highly likely someone was profiting from his begging. Day after day, people who were there in Acts chapter two, God lights their head on fire. They experience the earthquake. They feel the wind of heaven blow across their face. 
and they speak in spiritual languages. They walk past the beggar on their way to the temple every day at three in the afternoon to pray. And I would suggest this. Our Pentecostal experience in Acts chapter 2 means absolutely nothing if on our way to prayer we overlook the beggar. It's not either or, it's both and. If you preach a gospel apart from justice and compassion, you preach a gospel Jesus never preached. He did not just heal the leper, he touches the leper. He did not just heal the woman in Mark 5 who had been bleeding for 12 years. What does he do? He speaks an Aramaic term of endearment. In English, it's translated daughter. In Aramaic, it literally means royal one. He doesn't just heal her. He restores dignity, and he says, ah, you're the royal one. If you preach a gospel apart from justice and compassion, you preach a gospel he never preached. After you read Matthew 24, as Jesus teaches on the eschaton, the end, the, the end times, you come to Matthew chapter 25, and there are only a few parables shared. One of the parables he shares is this, I was hungry, and you fed me. Lord, when did we see you hungry? Whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. There's a context at the end times before the return of the Lord where it must uh, remain paramount that we give and love and serve generously those who are in need. Our experience in Acts 2 means nothing if we walk past the beggar in Acts 3. And Peter and John show us that the more spiritual we are, the more practical we become. It is profound to slow down and notice. That's what you do on the one day to feed the world. What are you doing? You're busy people. You have an awful lot to do. You've got kids and grandkids and foster kids. You have jobs. You have bills to pay. One day to feed the world, literally you're slowing down and you're saying, I see that there is this generation of hungry children that have been placed in my path and I refuse to walk past them. Peter and John teach us how spiritual it is to slow down long enough to notice. A few months ago, I visited a village in Zambia. It's a village of 150,000 people. It's called Nombe. In Nombe, half of the population is under the age of 15. When you walk through the villages, you'll notice that there are no men. The men are gone. Most of them have lost their life to AIDS. And 70% of the 75,000 children in the village are HIV positive. 70%. The government provides free antiretroviral medicine to every child in Zambia if they can reach the medicine. But the children, if they take the medicine, it will prolong their life. But the children in Nombe, we found out, were not taking their medicine. Why? Because it upsets their stomachs. Well, why does it upset their stomachs? Because they have to take it with food. Why don't they take it with food? Because they have no food. One percent of the, of the kids graduate from high school. I asked one of the headmasters, why is it? Is it because they cannot afford the, the fee for the uniforms, which is a real thing in many developing nations? Is it because they cannot afford their school fees? 
And the headmaster didn't mean to be insulting, but the headmaster chuckled and said, no, in places like Nombe, we do not even worry about collecting school fees. We teach not because we want money. We teach because we love kids. The children cannot afford uniforms or school fees. The reason why many of them do not graduate from high school, I was told, it's because they cannot afford a pencil. There are places in the world where children don't smile, where hope is buried like a fossil, where the hopelessness is thick and the burden is real. Places like Nombe. But in places like Nombe, God is at work. Because of you, God is at work. We took your one-day investment last year, and we opened up Zambia as a program country this year. And in villages like Nombe, if you'll slow down long enough and listen, you'll hear the sound of hope emerge. What does hope sound like? In places like Nombe, this is what it sounds like. We showed up at the village and the children gathered around us and started singing a song. And they're not singing the song to us. They're singing the song to Jesus. Can I tell you what they're singing? They're saying, God, you are a marvelous God. You are a good God. They're thanking God because they have food. The principal at the school put it this way. When you feed a child in Nombe, it is like you take him or her and place them on the roof of a building so that the child can shout to the world, here I am. Do you see me? Do you see me now? And to one million children around the world who are hungry, I want to say yes. On behalf of Westover Hills and Convoy of Hope, yes, we see you, and we are coming for you. I stand here humbly, but boldly, and I'm asking you to please Ask God what he would have you do. I used to struggle asking people for resource. So I decided to stop asking people for resource. I'm simply asking you to slow down long enough and notice. On your way to prayer, notice those who were crying out for help and ask God what he would have you do. We all have different capacity, I understand that. I grew up in a home with a single parent. Not everybody can do the same thing. But everyone can do something. And I stand here and I advocate on behalf of children 
will you please continue to help us help them? It's not making a difference. It's making the difference. And what I love about the Lord is the Lord slows down for us. Peter and John slowed down for the beggar because Jesus slowed down for them. In a few weeks, you're going to give one day to change their every day. But today, God is reaching out his hand to you. What I love about Peter is Peter reaches out his hand and helps the beggar up. It's an act of compassion. Peter didn't heal the beggar, God did. That's the way it works. God does it all, but we partner with God. And sometimes partnering with God means we reach out a hand and we help feed a child in places like Nombe. But what I love about Jesus is he always slows down and he reaches out a hand to us. And I know for a fact there are people in this room and you need a touch from God. The Bible says in Acts chapter 3 that the beggar went walking, leaping, praising God. He went walking. He was healed in his body. He went leaping. He was renewed and transformed in his mind. He went praising God. He experienced a spiritual transformation. Walking, leaping, praising God. Spirit, soul, body. What about you? Today, Jesus is here. He is among us. And he's reaching out to you.